Well, did you find yourself praying any differently this week or perhaps in a, in a uh, enhanced way from what we talked about last week? I hope that is true and uh, we just want to continue moving along that vein and helping us to think through how we can pray and pray more effectively, pray more in line with what the Lord has taught us. So this morning we, we return to this brief series that we're studying together in Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 to 13 on the subject of prayer. And I, I know it's the heart desire of many, it certainly is for me as well, to pray in a more biblically driven and focused, fresh, vibrant way. I mean, maybe you feel that at times you're praying for the same people and sometimes even the same circumstances and you think there has to be... There has to be a deeper way to pray for these things. And how do I do that in a fresh way, in a vibrant way? Well, even in what the Lord has given us in a model here, I think if you use it appropriately, you're going to find yourself praying in such a way. Much more fresh, vibrant, nuanced, and and I hope biblically. And that's what we want to accomplish in our time together. I know also when I'm praying, I want to make sure that I'm praying in such a way. I I want to have a kind of confidence that what I'm praying and the way I'm praying is in such a way that God finds it pleasing. You find that true of you as well? I want to pray in such a way that I know that the Lord himself is pleased with this. This is reflective of his heart and it, it expresses what's truly in my heart in times that I don't even know how to phrase it. So how is it that we should pray? The Lord has not left us without adequate instruction here. As we mentioned last week when we started this, even the disciples who had heard Jesus teach on prayer day after day, week after week, they could even perhaps a year or two into his ministry watch him pray. And at the end of that, though they've heard him teach on it many times, they've seen him pray. They still want to know, Lord, teach us to pray. And we find our own hearts echoing with that kind of thought. But what's so fascinating is when he answered that request, he gave them the same thing that he had been teaching them day in and day out. There really isn't anything new to prayer. There really isn't another category that we need to add to pray effectively. Yes, there might be some nuance in how we can deepen those categories and define them, but there really isn't There's really nothing more that needs to be said than what the Lord himself has said here. So we just simply want to understand it. So how do we go about it? How do we pray? Well, last week, we first, we wanted to spend some time understanding the context of this this entire prayer. We wanted to understand the context in light of the gospel of Matthew itself. We wanted to understand the context in what was being given in the Sermon on the Mount, within the prayer itself, and in light of our own times of prayer. We wanted to set the scene so we could see how important these words really are and see them as coming from the one true authoritative source of how to genuinely connect in conversation with God and understand how prayer can be expressed as a genuine righteous act and even how to properly view the use of this model prayer that Jesus has given us. So we unpacked all of that. If you're not with us during that time, it would probably do your heart well to go back and listen to all that we we provided last week. But we want to move from just understanding the context into the prayer itself. And within this model prayer, you will find, if you look at them, you'll find six different commands. 
and yet you can arrange those six commands into two parts. If you just trace the use of the pronouns that are used, especially in the first part, your, and in the second part, our, there is a God-focused element to prayer, and then there is a personal focus within prayer. Those are really the two parts to effective prayer, focusing on God and then reflecting your personal requests before the Lord. And so we began into that first part to focus upon God. And I would really suggest that that's where you begin as you spend some concentrated time in prayer before the Lord is focus upon God. We don't want to have the kind of prayer life that is self-focused, self-propagating. The way Jesus teaches us to pray causes us to focus first and foremost upon God. So how do we do that? What do we do? How do we focus our heart upon the Lord? Well, what is the opening request? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The place you begin when you focus upon God is pray for the sanctifying of God's name. There's a little more that I want to say on that than what I was able to get to last week. A little more that I want to add. Isn't that always the case, though? There's always something more to add to some of this, and, and that's what I, I do want to do a little bit of that today. Praying for the sanctifying of God's name. He begins by saying, our Father. And we unpack that a little bit, considering our position as the sons of God. We talked about considering our privilege being the sons of God. We were considering the promise that is to come as being the sons of God, that we will actually inherit what the Father has for us. But I also want you to think of something else here. When you approach God as Father, I want you to remember him as our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father. It is very important, I just want to add a note here because I know that I've heard this from many people as they think about God as our Father. It's important that we don't read our own personal experiences into how we think of God as being our Father. To do that would really to have a very limited view of God. Because if we have a view of God based on how we view our earthly Father then we're only thinking of him in terms of our own personal experiences, whether good or bad. And that's not helpful. That could limit you in prayer. Whether those experiences you have had have been good or whether they have not been so good. Been mindful of that a bit this week. Just last night, a very close friend of mine who was very influential in the formative days of my ministry, she went to heaven to be with the Lord last night. Her faith is now sight. I've been in conversation with her family throughout the week and suggesting passages of scripture for them to read to her as she was, she was passing into the presence of the Lord. And so it's been, been a, a pretty significant time for me to think back on all the things that God had taught me through this particular woman and her husband who we, we buried about 10 years ago. But one of the things I remember so significantly about her were the hours that she would come and talk to me, especially in the early days just after she was converted, of her childhood. And it was, it was probably the most reprehensible thing that I've ever heard in my entire life. And it had shaped most of her life. And it shaped so much of how she thought about God. I won't unpack the, so the, those details here. But they were bitterly painful. 
And I can remember trying to walk through the scriptures to help her see that God himself as father has nothing to do. He's not like her father. There's a different way to respond. There's a different way to see God as father because when she thought about a father, there wasn't anything positive. But I can tell you that over the years that I was there with that family and they became like family to me, she had a sweet relationship with the Lord. She understood the difference and she saw as she studied the scripture more and more about God as father that was precious and sweet and kind and gracious, how God had protected and provided even through the difficult seasons. But you might have had a very good experience with your father, but that also can be very limiting because that would limit you only to an earthly expression of goodness. He's far beyond that. He's greater than that, no matter how good that relationship you have with your father is. I mean, you think about what the scripture unpacks for us about how God provides in astounding ways. When you think it's hardship, it's actually expressions that will display his salvation. And he knows your needs and his resources are unlimited and his care for you could not be expressed any greater or any deeper than it has ever been expressed. There is no limit to him as father to us. So always think of him as our heavenly father because heaven is the dwelling of God in perfection and completion. When we approach him, we're not approaching an imperfect, incomplete person, but one who dwells in absolute, complete understanding and knowledge. That's who we come to in prayer. Deepen your understanding of that as you approach him in prayer. So ask the father to hallow his own name. Ask the father to do that. Approach him as father. How do we ask the father to hallow his own name? What are we asking for there? Well, we touched on it last week when we said that this really means to cause your name, God. You're praying for him to cause your name, father, to be valued as holy by and through others. It's not just him actively making his name hallowed, it's others hallowing his name because of his activity in their life. That is a profound way to pray for people. Why is it the hallowing of his name though? Why is it the hallowing of his name? Why not, Lord, hallow your character, your deity, your power, your sovereignty, or any other attribute that we could think about that, that God possesses in perfection. Any other attribute that makes him unique and beyond all other created things. Why not pray for that, for God to hallow that? Why pray for the hallowing of his name? Well, in reality, when we pray for the hallowing of his name, we're praying for the hallowing of all those things. His character, his deity, his power, his sovereignty, all the attributes that he possesses that makes him who he is. In fact, in the Bible, when a name is given, a name expresses the character of the person. When referring to God, his name is actually a synonym for his glory. And what do we mean when we talk about the glory of God? We mean when we talk about the glory of God, his radiant displayed supremacy. The display that is radiant, that is eye-catching, that is soul-stirring, the display of his supremacy over all things, that's his glory. And his glory is attached to his name. 
In fact, if you read the Bible carefully, especially in the Old Testament, you're going to find many times in our modern English Bibles, they tend to reflect the personal name of God in an almost veiled manner. Have you noticed that? When reading the Old Testament, you will frequently encounter a description of God with the phrase, the Lord God, and you see the word Lord in all capital letters. Have you noticed that as you're reading through the Old Testament? Well, what that is, is the editors of our English Bible take that all capital form Lord and use that to replace the actual divine name of God from the Hebrew text Yahweh, or as some have have described it as Jehovah. Each, each is just as accurate as the other, Yahweh or Jehovah. It reflects the divine personal name of God, his personal name, like your personal name, the name that you will likely use to refer to each other in conversation, your personal name. God's personal name is Yahweh. The name Yahweh comes from the Hebrew word Hayah or the verb to be, to exist. God is the ever existing one. He is the one who was and is and always will be. There is no other God that exists as God exists. That is his name, Yahweh, the existent one. That's his personal name. And throughout scripture, God's name is oftentimes, Yahweh is oftentimes revealed alongside a number of other terms that give even further nuance or description to his name. And perhaps you've seen that at times. For example, he is called Yahweh, our provider, or as some have referred to that in the past, trying to reflect the Hebrew Jehovah Yireh or Jireh. You've heard that? It's simply Yahweh who is our provider. Genesis chapter 22, verse 14, when God provided for Abraham on the mountain. Or Yahweh, our healer in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. Or Yahweh who sees and understands, Genesis sixteen thirteen. Or Yahweh who is our banner, the banner of victory and, and his personal name is over those who belong to him. Yahweh our banner in Exodus seventeen fifteen. It's really a helpful study if you went through the Old Testament and you noted those characteristics that are oftentimes associated with the name of Yahweh. Expressions of God's name and how they reveal the specific attribute connected to God. So when Jesus says you should pray, hallowed be your name, that's a loaded idea. It's loaded with biblical uh, phrases from the Old Testament and content and ideas. But I don't think that what Jesus is telling us here is that we just simply need to have all the names of God that we can find in the Bible on a list and we spend a season of, of worshiping God for who he is. Though that's not wrong and it can be good, that's not precisely what he's calling us to do here in this opening request. In this opening request, it wouldn't be wrong to rehearse the names of God, but this is actually asking God to do something that reflects who he is. It's asking him to act in such a way that causes other people to revere his name, and perhaps some aspect of his name would be appropriate. God, would you cause this individual who has this need that has been expressed to me today to see you and value you as the ultimate provider of all things so that they revere your name as supreme. That's how you pray for a need. 
It's not merely, God, just just meet the need. Just cause it to happen. No, God, meet the need in whatever way your mind, your wisdom believes would cause them to revere you as provider in the most profound way. So that when the need comes, it is not just satisfying that they had their need met. That's satisfying because they see the profundity of how God met the need. That's a different way to pray for people, isn't it? But that's how you pray for the hallowing of God's actual name. Yes, think about his attributes that are connected to his glory and his supremacy. And pray that he would cause people to revere him in those ways. We're asking God to cause his name to be hallowed as opposed to being profaned, dishonored, or treated as common or unworthy of his unique place of exaltation. You remember that command in the book of Exodus in the Ten Commandments that we are not to take the name of Yahweh your God in vain? Because Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. This is probably what Jesus has in mind in this opening phrase. Cause people to hallow your name, not take it in vain. But oftentimes I I hear Christians think and say and communicate that taking the name of God in vain is somehow just using his name in a curse word or as a curse word. That's really not the idea. The idea behind taking the name of God in vain is to wear the name of God in such a way that your lifestyle, your responses, your behavior cause God's name to be cheapened or treated as unholy or common. See, God is, yes, certainly concerned that you would use his name properly, but use his name properly in the way that you live. It's one thing for you to go to to work, to live in your neighborhood and call yourself a Christian. But what does that look like to your neighbors? And what does that look like to your coworkers? Are you afraid of the name of God so you keep it hidden? That That could be using the name of God in an empty way. To say that he's valuable to you and yet you you don't want to talk about him openly because you're afraid of what people might think if they associate you with God? That's taking the name of God in vain. Perhaps praying for each other and that the name of God would be hallowed by each other is that we would be bold in wearing the name of God wherever he sends us. That we would be clear that our name represents him well. That's how we can live in such a way that God's name is not treated in a vain way. This opening request in Jesus' instruction on prayer is for people to love God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind because that would hallow the name of God. Maybe this would look like praying for unconverted family members and friends, and neighbors, and co-workers, and government leaders by name, entire nations even, to revere the name of God as holy. Maybe this opening request could be like our pleading with God to extend his grace in purifying people who belong to him. Maybe you're praying for the holiness of the church, and the holiness of leaders, and members, as they represent the name of God where they live. 
Maybe we could rehearse the various attributes connected to the name of God and pray each one of those that God would cause us to see him in those ways. But this goes beyond what we're praying for God to do just in the present. This actually is a future-oriented prayer. When you ask for God's name to be sanctified, it's not just praying that it would be sanctified now. It's asking for God's name to be sanctified permanently. Not just presently, but permanently. Think about this. When is it that the name of God is going to be completely revered without any, any kind of vain ideas attached to it? When he returns, right? When he establishes the kingdom, when he establishes the kingdom that will usher in the eternal state and the name of God will be completely, perfectly revered. This is actually us praying that God would bring that ultimate state about. And I want you to think of this because we're going to see it in many of the phrases of this prayer. Much of the, the way we pray is to expect the return of the Lord. We're to pray as if we're to live as well, as if the Lord will come and make all things new and all things right. And all things will be right when his name is fully sanctified in the hearts of every single person. Do you ever find yourself praying with that kind of expectancy and longing for the name of God to be revered completely? I know you think of it because you see it in your own frustrations, when you watch the news and you see the latest things that are coming out in society, you think, when is this all going to end? Well, you know the answer to that, don't you? Don't you know the answer of when it's all going to come to completion and end? When is God going to finally come and make all of this right? Doesn't your heart want that and long for that? Well, that's part of this praying for the sanctifying of God's name. I think it would be helpful for you to see all the things that you're praying about, the things that concern you, the things that agitate your soul within this. God come and make all things new in our hearts. Come, Lord Jesus. When he comes, it'll be complete. Just one other thing I want to say here in this. Do you notice we're asking God to do this work? This is something only God can do. Do you know that? Do you believe that? That only God can actually cause someone's heart to revere him. Which tells you a lot about our hearts. Our hearts naturally want to defame God. They move away from God. They desire self-exaltation, not God-exaltation. This is praying for God to do what only God can do. When someone is awakened from spiritual death into spiritual life to a place where they once had disregard or disinterest in God and now they are inflamed with desire for God, that is the activity, the supernatural activity of God in the heart through the work of Christ in the gospel, isn't it? Do you find yourself praying this way? The reason I'm praying, God, is because I, I know there's not, any, uh, there's not another way. There's, there's no one else who can do this. This is why we pray. You know, you know, it really doesn't matter what you believe about the sovereignty of God and how God works in his sovereign hands. Everybody believes in the ultimate sovereignty of God. You can argue about it if you want, but if you ever pray, you believe in it. You're asking him to do something because you know you can't do it. 
you know that others can't make it happen. He has to cause this to happen and come alive in someone's heart. Only God can raise the spiritually dead to life. Only God can cause a heart that hates him to love him. Only God can establish true justice on the earth. You think you can establish justice? You think our government can establish true justice? You think our world can somehow apply true justice on this, this earth? Not as long as sin is here. And without the activity, the divine, direct activity of God, there is no justice. There's no righteousness. God must bring that about. Yes, we'll work for it. We'll, we'll aim for it. We'll structure our lives around what we believe is just in the eyes of God, but for it to be accomplished, God has to do that. That's how Jesus prayed. John 12, 28, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And how will he do that? Through awakening people to value the holiness of his name. Paul prayed this way, In Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, he said, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That's just a wordy way to say, hallowed be your name. I like wordy guys like Paul. To just add some depth and further description and definition to what Jesus is saying here. This is to be your heart. It's the heart cry of every redeemed person. I find this opening request fascinating. We're not just meditating and rehearsing on the attributes of God. We're actually worshiping him by asking him to do something profound and causing people to love his name. I want to think about this practically. How do we pray for God to cause his name to be sanctified practically? What would this look like in your own personal times of prayer? Think about this. Outside of merely repeating the phrase, Father, cause your name to be hallowed, and you simply repeat that phrase with every name that you think of and that's on your list, what would this look like practically? Well, let me ask you a question. What is it that God has given us that we can be 100% sure that if we use it to pray, we would pray in accordance with what would hallow his name? It's an easy question. It's not trick. His, his word, right? The Bible. The Bible. If I pray according to what is in this book, in a way that is accurate to the meaning of this book, I can have confidence that I'm praying for what I know will cause the name of God to be revered appropriately. Every time I use this book as, the, as really the substance of my prayer, I have that kind of confidence. Have you ever thought about how you connect your Bible reading to your prayer life? Have you ever found yourself, okay, I have my Bible reading, I do my Bible reading, and then I have my time of prayer, and, and I find Bible reading pretty engaging because I'm, I'm looking at its context, and I'm digging into the truth, and I'm understanding it, but prayer, I start praying, and I, I kind of lose my way. I don't know exactly what to, to pray about, or all these other things start popping into my mind that I have to do today, or I should do, or call this person and do that thing. How do I stay focused? Well, I say combine the two. 
combine them. Use the Bible. Uh, Psalm 138 verse 2 makes this statement. It reminds us that God has magnified his word according to his name. Isn't that interesting? He has magnified his word according to his name. If I am praying for the hallowing of God's name, the sanctifying of God's name, I should do that in accordance with his word because his word magnifies his name. So pray the content of scripture. Let me give you an example. This week I found myself in my daily Bible reading plan reading Genesis 38 about how the Lord was with Joseph, causing him to prosper in everything that he did in the house of Potiphar. And you remember us studying that not that long ago. It included preserving Joseph from the evil intentions of others and the potential personal temptations in himself and the adverse consequences of injustice against him. You remember that? Well, I happen to regularly meet with a group of men for ongoing personal discipleship, and I found myself praying for each one of them by name through the content of Genesis 38, praying them in their various places of employment and their family and their neighborhood context. And I prayed something kind of like this. I prayed, Father, cause these brothers to flourish in their jobs so that others would see your hand a favor on them. Preserve them from falling into temptation that would cause your name to be dishonored in their family or in their church and the community. And even when trials come from unjust treatment, show your favor over their work ethic and abiding trust in you so that even the unbelieving world would see their trustworthy character. Another day I was reading from Psalm 18. In the end of that psalm in verses 30 to 35, I used that as a portion of my time for praying for my wife to know the Lord's unique strength to make her day one that was blameless before him despite some of the illness that she has experienced and the potential temptation to be discouraged by that, that he would enliven her heart. I prayed for God to preserve each of our our church's elders with his blameless ways and the specific details of their day as I prayed through Psalm 18. I prayed for my children to come to trust that the Lord is a shield to them and that they would take refuge in him as they respond to their expectations of other peers and pressures in themselves to cave to the fear of man. All of these requests use a detail from God's word in such a way that I'm actually praying for God to cause his name to be hallowed in another person's life. It's a practical way that I can use my daily Bible reading in prayer. It provides a fresh way to pray for the same people every day. It stimulates me to pray for people in ways that I probably would never think of praying. And using the Bible to pray for people in this way provides me a confidence that I'm actually praying for what I know God wants to answer. Righteous prayer asks for, it seeks, it pleads for God to cause his name to be valued as holy. And using his word helps me to pray in a variety of ways that fits with the character of God's name. Do you see how you could use that this week? You could employ that in praying for the sanctifying of God's name in the lives of many others. There is a second God-focused request in this instruction on prayer. A second God-focused request here. 
It's not just praying for the sanctifying or the hallowing of God's name. Secondly, it is praying for the coming of God's kingdom. Pray for the coming of God's kingdom. When we pray to God, who is our Father who is in heaven, who is overseeing all things with perfect power and wisdom, we pray that he would, his, he would cause his name to be hallowed, and we also pray that his kingdom would come. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Now what is interesting here is where the first request was for God to cause his name to be hallowed by others because it was used in the passive voice in the Greek New Testament. The second is more direct. God, bring your kingdom. It's not the passive voice, it's the active voice. God, you bring the kingdom. Not cause others to bring the kingdom. You bring the kingdom. This is what God does. You bring your kingdom in. It is the way John the Baptist and even Jesus began their public preaching ministry. They were telling people the kingdom of God is at hand. The coming kingdom is the coming of the Messiah and his salvation and promised redemption from sin and the establishment of God's new covenant and that new covenant rule in human hearts. That's what the coming of the kingdom is. It's the coming of the Messiah, bringing salvation and the rule of God through that salvation into human hearts. You're essentially praying for people to come into salvation with God, aren't you? There is an evangelistic flavor in this. Bring your kingdom. You can make that eminently practical. You ever sit down and list in front of you all of the concentric circles of lostness around you? Have you ever stopped to do that? I, I know that you, you probably know there are people in your family, maybe your immediate family, extended family who don't know the Lord. But have you just sat down maybe in concentric circles and thought about those circles of lostness that exist? And have you ever thought about how to pray for the kingdom of God to come in each one of those circles of concern? Your immediate family members, extended family members and relationships, your neighbors, the people you work with, the people you go to school with, the people you meet in random places, a cashier at a store, a person you, you happen to have a brief conversation with while pumping gas. Random places and people that you come across, have you ever stopped to think, may the kingdom of God come, bring your kingdom, your rule through the Messiah and his salvation into this. Bring the rule of the kingdom here. You have people in the church who are telling you about brothers and sisters and family members who are lost and in their life. Do you pray that God's kingdom would come? You can complain about the local schools or you could pray, God, bring your kingdom. You could complain about government officials. And we do. Or we could pray, God, bring your kingdom. What changes everything? The kingdom rule of Christ changes everything. Bring your kingdom. Pray for the success of church planting. God, bring your kingdom. Help us to be aware of where we need to plant a church, 
where a new church needs to be established. How can we strengthen an existing church that needs help and that we providentially could come alongside and help? That's praying for God to bring his kingdom, his saving rule. But just like the previous one, have you noticed, this prayer goes far beyond non-Christians to be converted. Just like the request prior to it, praying for the coming of God's kingdom is praying for God's final, unhindered, physical, recognized, and accepted reign to be applied to everything, to everything, in such a way that it will usher in the eventual future state of God's eternal, unopposed rule. What is that? Come, Lord Jesus. Come. The kingdom is what the righteous will one day inherit in all of its fullness without any hindrance of sin. In fact, if you read about the kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew, it's almost all future-oriented. For example, Matthew 5.20 in the Sermon on the Mount. I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom. What is that? It's anticipating a final rule of God, isn't it? Matthew 16, your kingdom come. That's still something that has not yet happened in completion. Bring your kingdom. Matthew seven twenty one. not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will what? Enter the kingdom of heaven. That's future. It's not now, it's future. Praying for the coming of God's kingdom is praying for the return of Christ to the earth. My personal sin, when I think about it, and I think about how much I hate it, and I don't want it present in my life anymore, makes me yearn for Christ to come. God, come and overcome my flesh. Physical suffering. You ever been at the bedside of someone who passes, who you love? It makes you long, long for the coming of the kingdom where there will be no more death and no more suffering. You see the unrighteous direction of our nation? Does it just anger you or does it make you long for Jesus to come and make you cry out to him, bring your kingdom the torturous way that sin is ravaging the lives of people around us, it makes me want Christ to come back. And when I think of that, it motivates me, it encourages me, it drives me then to engage people in such a way that I I want to see them present when the Lord returns in that kingdom. Yes, we should taste an evangelistic flavor here, but also a longing for the final coming of Christ. I think about the end of the book of Revelation. When the apostle John had finished all of this revelation that was given to him about the return of the Lord, in light of all the suffering that was going on in his world that he personally knew, and seeing every way in which the Lord was going to come back and enact vengeance and judgment over unbelief and sinners who would not respond to him and vindicate those who love his name. Do you know what John said? At the end of the book, in Revelation 22 and 17, the spirit and the bride say, what? 
come. And let the one who hears say what? Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who who wishes to take water of life without cost come. And he who testifies to these things, the apostle John, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen, John says, come quickly. What's John want when he sees everything that God will do? Come. Is that what you see in your heart? Come, Lord. Bring your kingdom. Pray for the coming of the kingdom. That means you're praying for the lost to be saved and to live under the future soon coming rule of the Messiah on the earth. That's a God-focused way to pray. You could think of practical ways in which you could pray for all the issues of concern and the circles of lostness you see around you. Pray for God's kingdom to come. Third, a third God-focused element in Jesus' opening lesson on prayer. Pray for the sanctifying of his name. Pray for the coming of his kingdom. Third, pray for the accomplishing of God's will. Simple, isn't it? You're asking the Father who rules over all things in heaven in perfection, with perfect knowledge and absolute power, cause people to revere your name, bring your kingdom. And then he says, pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just like that opening request, you remember it was a passive verb, cause other people to hallow your name. The next one was active. No, you, God, bring your kingdom. This one has a passive verb. Cause other people to do your will on earth the way it is done now in heaven. Cause them to do what is your will We're not praying, Father, accomplish your will. We're praying, Father, cause your will to be done by others. May people do what the Father desires to be done. Here we're praying for God to bring about the doing of his will through people as they choose to do what he desires. This is another expression of how divine sovereignty and human willfulness are intertwined. People often ask me, do you believe in the free will of man? And like most questions, I always ask, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by free will? That you can just do anything without God's intervention or involvement, that you can do whatever you want? Yeah, that we just have the freedom, we can do anything we want. And I say, well, fly. If you're free. Well, we're, we're only free within our limitations. I believe that. That's what I believe. In fact, I believe we do what we want to do. And we do whatever we want to do. The problem is, is our want to. Our limitation. And our want to, according to Romans 6, is dead in trespasses and sins. Right? Our nature is dead. So I can do whatever I want... Except my nature says I won't want God. Are you saying 
that an unbeliever can't want God? No, I'm saying he won't. She won't. They won't. Because their nature is enslaved to sin. So what are we praying for when we ask that people will do the will of God? Break the bonds of sin. Break the chains of slavery to sin so that they will want to do your will and will do it. And it takes God to do that. It takes God to do that. Now, what are we saying when we say we want people to do the will of God? Because the will of God could be expressed in a number of different ways. We could understand the will of God, as theologians often refer to it, as what we call the decreed will of God. The decreed will of God. That is his will of command. Everything that he has designed will happen precisely as he has designed it to occur within his exhaustive wisdom. All things that happen, happen because of his design. That is his decreed will. And guess what? He hasn't told us what that is. I know we'd all like to know what it is, but he has not told us. It is hidden. It is secret. He doesn't tell us what his decreed will is. He's not revealed that to us. He's not likely going to show you what it is. And when about the time you think you know what the decreed will of God is, there's some change. There's some nuance to it. And you're like, wow, didn't see that coming. Right. Because he's all wise. He knows how it's going to end and he's moving everything, even human wills to that ultimate end. That's his decreed will. He's ordained what will happen. But there's another expression of God's will and I call that his will of desire. His will of desire. In fact, there are two different Greek terms used in the New Testament to reflect this. There is a term that's used to reflect his will of command. There's also a term that reflects his will of desire. This is often referred to as his revealed will. Now, there are certain things he has told us that he desires us to do, wants us to do, like the commands of Scripture. I can have every confidence that what he's told me to do in the Bible, that's his desire for me to do. That's the will of desire. It's revealed to us. His standards, his expectations. And people do ignore it and they reject it and they fight against it. And I kind of think that that's the idea here in your will be done. He's not simply praying for the decreed will of God to be accomplished. It will be accomplished. He's praying for the will of desire, God's will of desire to be accomplished. For people to do what God desires to be done. That's the will of God we're praying for. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father. Which will do you think he's talking about? Decreed will or desired will? The one who does what the father desires him to do. The desired will. That's who will enter into heaven. Matthew 12, 50, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Who's, who's really family members with Christ? Those who are doing what God has revealed to be done. So it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish, Matthew eighteen fourteen. What's his desired will? He doesn't desire any one of these little ones of his, his little children to perish. Matthew 21, 31, 
which of the two did the will of his father. What will is that referring to? The will of desire, what the father wanted. Or even Jesus in Matthew 26, 42, he went away again a second time saying, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. What do you want done? That's what I want to do. Not mine. Your will be done. This is a plea for our heavenly father to cause people to obey him and his will But notice the phrase, the way his desired will is done where? In heaven. How's that? How is the desired will of God accomplished in heaven? Well, there's no opposition there. It's unhindered. It's absolutely done exactly how he desires it to do, to be done in perfection. And we're praying that people would do that on earth. The way it's done in heaven. So when we intercede for people's needs, we're praying for them to respond to the Father's desires. Oh, now this is a really helpful way to pray for our brothers and sisters or neighbors. Hey, would you pray for me? I've got a job interview this week. How would this request help you pray for that person who has a job interview this week? Pray that they would want what the Father wants. Now, normally, when I have the job interview and I really want the job, I'm asking you to pray that I get the job. What does the father want? What would the father think is best? What would the father desire? What's involved in making the decision for this job? And would this reflect the father's will and what he's revealed and how he's communicated it? Lord, I'm praying that they think through what your will is, your reveal revealed will is in regard to this job it's just an example of how you could pray for this you're not just praying god meet their need meet their need make sickness flee make them all well what would cause them to want your ways your heart your desires lord that's what i want in them So perhaps if just providing the need would astound their mind with the glory of God and it would cause their heart to revere him and follow him in obedience, you pray, God, meet the need so it accomplishes that. But Lord, we also know sometimes you withhold and you keep back or you you determine in your, your plan and your wisdom that walking through this season of hardship would actually refine the heart so it desires what you desire it burns away the vain desires of our own flesh so that it's purified and desires only what you want in the word it's praying for people's eyes to be open to what the revealed will of God is perhaps even for them to hear and understand in a gathering when they're hearing a sermon open our eyes so we understand what you want God so that when we live our life this week in response to it We're living as you desire. Cause us to live that way. Cause us to want what you want. And many times we don't know exactly how we should pray for someone. Or for someone, how we should pray for them to respond to a certain circumstance or situation. Maybe we're challenged and we don't know what God's desired response should be in a particular situation. 
Well, just model what Jesus prayed. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. There are Christians and theologians out there that say, that's the wrong way to pray. That has no faith to it. If you just pray, this is what I want, but Lord, if that's not what you want, then do what you want. That's faithless. Look at what you want, desire it, want it, and tell God, this is my will. This is what I want. I believe this is your will for me. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't go out there and name it, claim it, and say this is God's will. Don't do that. How presumptuous. You don't have the mind of God. You don't have the wisdom of God. You don't have the perspective of God. You don't know what God wants to do in your heart and the hearts of many others. And listen, let's, let's not worry ourselves trying to figure out what the decreed will of God is and then we'll just pray according to that. He's not told us. He's not going to tell us. He's given us all that we need. What is revealed here is enough. If we would focus and pray on that, it would be sufficient. Think about one other thing in regard to this request. When will this request find its fullest expression? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When will that be done? When heaven comes to earth. So what are you praying for here? How should you see all of these requests that you're praying for? In light of the coming of the Lord. In fact, every request in this God-focused section of praying is praying essentially for the return of the Lord, isn't it? Do you actually live in light of the coming of Christ? Do you know how that motivates morality? Do you know how the coming of Christ motivates worship, praise, expectation, trust, and faith? That's why he's saying, pray these things now, but pray with an expectancy that the Lord is coming, that heaven will come to earth, and then all things will be done according to God's will. And that's what we want, isn't it? That's what we want. How do you do that practically? Well, again, how do I know what God wants? The Bible. Get real practical with it. Have you ever seen the prayers of the Apostle Paul in books like Romans and 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Philemon. Have you noticed those prayers of the Apostle Paul? He's interceding for the saints to do something, to live a certain way, to think a certain way. If you want to know fresh expressions of how to pray for people to do the will of God, I say take one of Paul's prayers. Use it as a model of which you could pray through for other people. Would you not have confidence? This is the will of God. This is what God thinks. This is what God desires. This is what would reflect God. Pray that way. And and it's so interesting as you walk through the Bible, if you use the Bible as a springboard for prayer, you'll begin to pray for people in ways you never quite thought about. 
I'm always on the hunt as I'm reading through the Bible. I have different sections of the Bible I read through each day from the Old Testament and the New. And I'm kind of always on the hunt. How do I use this to pray for people today? How would this help me pray? I'm always astounded as something that kind of convicts me or or something that pops into my mind. This is how I could pray for people today. I've never really prayed this way. Never thought about praying this, but I'm confident this is what God would desire. It's right here in his word. He's revealed it. So, Lord, would you begin to cause people to, to, to live this way and want this and follow this? Again, it, it, it's very practical, isn't it? These first three Godward requests, there are three different nuances to ask God to be ultimately glorified. That's what we're praying Three ways to submit our hearts to the sovereign lordship of Christ as we pray. Each request puts us in the perfect frame of mind before we ever turn our attention toward our own needs. We've thought of that. I'm so preoccupied with praying for God to be valued by others before I ever begin to think even about myself. That's a God-focused way to pray. There's no self-promoting motivations there. It's deeply personal, submissive to God himself. When we pray in a God-focused manner, we're going to find ourselves praying for others with God's ultimate plan in mind. So I want you to think about that. Even if you're not a Christian, I want you to think about that. Your heart might not want the glory of God. What does it want? What does it want? If you got all that you want, do you really think that you would be ultimately and completely satisfied? Well, if you just look at your own experience as a non-Christian and you've achieved things that you've wanted and milestones, have you reached that place where you said, that's it, I'm satisfied, don't need any more? No, we all know. You reach it, you grab it, you have it, And it's like cotton candy, isn't it? Sweet for a second and gone. God isn't that way. He's all satisfying because he has made us to reflect himself. When we reflect him and his image and glory, it brings great lingering satisfaction to life, no matter what the circumstances are. So if you're not a Christian, you need to simply pray that you would desire the holiness of God. And pray that he would give you a heart that wants Christ and his will to be accomplished. And pray that he would bring his kingdom rule into your soul. And all of us, that's what we're going to be praying for you if you don't know the Lord. And that's what we're going to be praying for each other throughout this week, aren't we? Let's think again. If we applied this more specifically this week... What do you think we will see God do this week? Let's pray together.